This week's press gallery is brought to you by Callaway. Specifically, the Chrome Soft. It's a tour ball, but it's not just any tour ball. It's the golf ball that's changing how tour balls are made. When Callaway made a low compression, low spin tour ball, others said they might be onto something, everybody. And they tried doing the same, but they can't. You know why? Because Chrome Soft is the only ball engineered with a graphene infused dual soft fast core for serious speed and unbelievable control around the greens. See for yourself where everyone is playing and loving Chrome Soft. Order the ball at Change the Ball at CallawayGolf.ca. Another quick reminder that you can and should subscribe to the Press Gallery. You can find us wherever you podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or on Spotify. And we have a promotion going right now. Go to edmontonjournal.com slash podcasts and you can get a 330-day subscription to our wonderful little newspaper. So exciting. Um, any questions, comments, or concerns, give me a shout. I promise I won't talk to you in a terrible accent whatever that was, egraney at postmedia.com or you can find me on Twitter at Emma L. Graney. Enjoy this week's episode. Hello and welcome to the Press Gallery, the Edmonton <laughs> Journal's politics podcast. It's Friday, August 2nd, 2019. I'm your host, provincial affairs reporter, Emma Graney. I'm already making people laugh. That's Great. This is the as always. <laughs> this is the Injunction Junction edition. Nice title. Yeah. Thank you, Sarah O'Donnell, who is sitting right next to you me. You can for thank that. a lot of uh, television watching in my youth for that special <laughs> one. Yes. Love it. Uh, Janet French, our education reporter. How are you, mate? I'm wonderful. Thanks for asking. Well, thanks for being here. My pleasure. No, thank you. No. What uh, accents are we doing now? Jeez. No idea what's what going happening? on. I don't know. And Claire Glancy, my legislative colleague. How are you, mate? Hello. A quick thing I wanted to say, Sarah's, um, that the podcast you recommended, This Sounds Serious. I've already listened to the first season. I love it so much. Excellent. I'm glad it was at least a hit with one listener. Yeah. Hooray. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming to join me in the Edmonton Journal studio today. It is summer, but weirdly stuff is happening. This happened last summer too. So we've got a few things on the go. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, an injunction granted to AUPE against Bill 9. So that was in court this week. I got to go to court. It was both terrifying and an adventure. Um, we're also going to talk about the latest in the whole Chicago principles. Mm, let's go with kerfuffle. I reckon I can use that word there. Finally, we'll give you a very brief update on the war room and some UCP recent hires. Let's get stuck into it. This is the Injunction Junction edition. So let's start off with Bill Nye. I was going to say, we're not going to make it like five seconds without singing. Yeah, no, I know. (laughs) Channeling Paula Simon. And (laughs) Injunction Junction, what's your function? So this week in court, now Clancy, you covered this as well. Can you give us a rundown on what happened around Bill 9? Should we start at the beginning or should we start at this week? What you do know, we think? Let's start at the very beginning. Yes, That's where you should me. always start. Uh, true. Mm. Let's start at the very beginning. Another a very song. good place exactly. to start. Yes. Oh my goodness. <laughs> okay. So um, Bill 9 was introduced during the spring session or summer session, I guess. And um, what it does is it delays wage talks with unions until after October 31st. The bill was kind of touted by the UCP as a necessary step while the province waits for this blue ribbon panel to come back with the information about Alberta's financial situation. 
So uh, Finance Minister Travis Taves, when he introduced it, said that that was really the reason why it was being brought forward. It immediately caused a huge stir among unions, um, many of which came to the legislature to protest. And uh, the kind of big unions involved, inclu- involved include AUPE, the United Nurses of Alberta, the Alberta Teachers Association, um, the Health Sciences Uh, association, sorry, I'm getting that union name wrong, but many of the large unions for especially healthcare workers and um, teachers. So it's a big deal because it affects hundreds, uh, like I think it affects almost 100,000 workers in Alberta. I'm going to pass it over to Emma, who was in court this week, about what's been going on there. What an adventure I had at court on Monday. I never cover court. This is like the second time ever that I've gone into a courthouse, but there you have it. And you were in Edmonton's Court of Queen's Bench, right? Yeah, I, I eventually, I actually went to the wrong court to start with. Ah, provincial court. Provincial? Yeah, good appeal. job me. And then divorce? a nice sheriff took me to where I needed to Aww. be. Yeah, Emma arrived at divorce court. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so basically in court, it was on Monday. So we had the... Um, Alberta Union of Public Employees was going head-to-head with the government lawyers. Uh, the United Nurses of Alberta also joined in as an intervener. They're up in front of Justice Eric Macklin, who I might add is quite funny and likes to add in the old comment every now and again in the courtroom laugh. We love a fun laugh. judge. Love a fun judge. So basically, the union lawyer uh, was arguing that Bill 9 nullifies the collective terms agreed to in the last set of bargaining. So the big thing there is the right for wage talks to be heard by June 30. That was the big kind of heart of this whole court case. Now, the government lawyers turn around and like, nah, 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 see, you do still get arbitration. It's just a delay, guys. What's the big deal? What's the big deal? It's just a delay. To which the union lawyers are like, well, yeah, it's a big deal because that was one of the things one of the key points that was agreed to, and we didn't even propose that June 30 deadline. It was the government who proposed that June 30 deadline, and we only agreed to it to make sure we could actually get an agreement with our members. So for you to say that the date is kind of irrelevant as long as you're getting your arbitration is not correct. It is a massive part of the contracts. The union lawyers also argued that you just can't break contracts willy-nilly. You just can't be doing that. And the government was like, yeah, but it's not really breaking a contract because, again, that date is not key. It's not the very center of what this is, whole thing is about. So it's fine. Justice Macklin, in the end, agreed with the union lawyers and went, yeah, man, you can't just go breaking contracts. What are you doing? Don't do that. I'm paraphrasing. That is not what he wrote in his judgment, but it's pretty much close enough. It did take him um, a full day. So this was on Monday and the court adjourned around two, three o'clock in the afternoon. And Justice Macklin said, I know we, we need a something real quickly here, so I'll try and get it to you Tuesday or Wednesday morning at the at the latest. So by Tuesday afternoon around 4.30, we still didn't have it. We're like, well, I guess it'll come tomorrow. But that's not what happened. It came out at (laughs) 6 o'clock on Tuesday night as I was running out of my door to go to field hockey. So, yeah, basically the judge has agreed with the union, sided with the union, said, yeah, government just can't be breaking contracts willy-nilly. And yeah, yeah so, so I followed up with unions after this saying kind of what's the feeling among members now that um, this was a big win. So it's important to note here that this was the AUPE case. Uh, the UNA, uh, the United Nurses of Alberta, actually have their own court case that's pending. Um, and other unions are considering legal action because they all have different arbitration dates and negotiation processes. Um, so this could snowball into multiple different legal actions, which is what everyone's kind of waiting to see what this AUP 
PE decision will mean. And unions have said they're consulting with their legal counsel um, on kind of what the next steps are. But I spoke to a few union leaders, and um, namely David Harrigan, who's from the United Nurses of Alberta, and um, he came down to the legislature actually to speak to reporters and said that trust has been broken completely with union members. And what he wants to see the finance minister do immediately is he's asking that the government make a commitment that they won't bring forward any more legislation that could potentially delay wage talks. Um, And because I kind of asked what would be the first step to restore some trust, and he said maybe that would be a beginning. But really, I think what's kind of the big picture here is that we have thousands of workers entering into negotiations with the government, and they are starting at a very kind of bad faith uh, stance. Yeah, because let's not forget, I mean, the contracts that were negotiated here were two years of zero raises and then the wage re- renegotiated in, in the third year, right? So these people are like, well, we sucked it up in, you know, in exchange for protection for our jobs. We didn't have any raises. And then the deal was we get to go and talk about it in year three. And then the government reneged on that deal. That was their whole thing. So in actually in the court on um in court on Monday the government lawyer said look if if you if you grant this injunction there are so many more of these court cases waiting in the wings to just come and you know descend on the court i think that's exactly what he said and that's exactly what's going to happen. Uh, Janet, what are you hearing from the Teachers Association? Uh, so the teachers also have their own statement of claim uh, on Bill 9. And their argument is, why are we even included in this? Because our arbitration dates are a month after Janice McKinnon's uh, panel on Alberta's spending is due to report back to government. So they're like, why are we even being wrapped up in this whole party uh and so <laughs> i love that you party. just called it a party well i paused <laughs> injunction, party. I used the Woo. injunction party <laughs> uh nobody throws a party never mind yeah. um, <laughs> where are we going uh so the teachers the teachers are obviously watching very very closely the outcomes of these particular cases um they're they don't quite have a court date yet for theirs but if you read their statement of claim it's very similar similar arguments about um you know this isn't this isn't bargaining in good faith it's not a holding the agreement. A time limit was an important part of the agreement. And I think it's important to note that for workers, every time you push a date back for arbitration, it's we don't know whether they would get a raise or not. But if they did, it, it's money that they're not earning now that's being delayed. So it's a, a delay is a loss of income to them should they receive a wage increase. Interestingly, to that point, it was uh, brought up in court by the government lawyers that were they to get a wage increase, it would be backdated anyways. So then they would be getting that money. Then you're having to not only negotiate the wage and go from there forward, you're looking backwards, how much is that going to cost us? So that was another really interesting part that's, of this. That's interesting, though, because when you look back at when the bill was introduced, there was very little detail about those kinds of potential changes, right? So yeah, if you're talking about communication with members, maybe if it had been rolled out in a different way, people might have taken it slightly differently. I don't know. Yeah, and it's interesting that this is, I mean, this is going to be appealed. We know that. We know the government automatically said, Okay, no, we're going to appeal that. But they didn't seem to ask for an expedited hearing, or am I wrong on that? So that's actually a funny little side note to this whole thing. Yeah, Travis Taves, the finance minister, is like, yeah, we're definitely going to have an expedited hearing. Um, But then we looked at the court documents, and they kind of ticked the wrong box. Ah. Yeah. (laughs) And we haven't actually talked to Travis Taves since the decision was rolled out. Um, There hasn't been an availability with the minister yet, so I think that's a question we'll obviously be asking him. And it could be a mistake. Maybe they just 
meant to tick expedited right. and, and didn't or meant to tick yes and tick no. <laughs> you know, that happens, yeah. right? So, I mean, it looks like right now, I mean, it's still going to be in this strange place of limbo for the next few weeks at least. So, or, or do they... Are, are they making plans with this court decision to, okay, start to, you know, strike the the uh, the committee to start with the arbitration or does the appeal put all that on pause still? There were dates already actually set. The arbitrator had kind of penciled in some dates in August already ahead of all this happening. Now, it was supposed to happen back in June, but then when the unions were like, we're going to try and get an injunction, the arbitrator was like, all right, cool, we'll just book off some days between August 7 and 11 and then we'll be good to go kind of thing. So it looks like this is going to go ahead, um, like the arbitration is just going to happen. But then as a result of the McKinnon panel, we don't know what's going to happen because the McKinnon panel could very well, as has been her you know, take in the past, could recommend you all have to take a wage cut you know, and then the government can impose that on workers. Even if the arbitrator decides that, um, a working gr- a group of workers has taken too many zeros and deserves a wage increase because of inflation. She's so I, I'm just She's holding my hands up in the air right now, but I realize <laughs> you in uh, listener land cannot see me doing the life that. version of a shrug emoji. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was a life version shrug emoji. I don't know. That's the whole thing. There's so many unknowns here, and there's and it's not just around union contracts either. I mean, the McKinnon panel is basically what. The UCP government is repeatedly citing when it comes to literally anything that you ask them about, when it comes to the rural internet, when it comes to uh, persons with developmental disability supports, when it comes to uh, education budgets, when it comes to funding for universities, when it comes to health centres. Like you pick a provincial funding thing and we're not getting any answers on any of it because they're all waiting for the McKinnon panel. No pressure, Janice. No pressure. No pressure, Janice. It's fine, Janice McKinnon. (laughs) Everything's cool. Yeah, so many. I mean, it's a a situation that everybody's in the school boards, municipalities, the um, the, – Alberta Innovates, with, we just saw Amanda Stevenson did a story today and from our colleague from the Calgary Herald about, uh, you know, the tech sector wondering, well, what about this funding that we had thought we were going to get? What's going to happen to that? So uh, certainly, yes, there's a situation where we have thousands and thousands of workers just, yeah, wondering what can they plan for uh, in their household budget based on their pay. Yeah. And and no one knows. Like, what will, you know, what will be the resources for classrooms? Mm. Interesting, you know, I think they're they're fascinating cases, though, and I think that for labor lawyers and, and people who are interested in in issues such as this, there's going to be some some interesting cases and uh, and and case law to look at out of all of this. Somebody's going to write a master's thesis on this. Later. <laughs> you just know it, absolutely. All right, let's move over to the Chicago principles. Now we've been writing about this for a while. I know I did a story back in May about the Chicago principles. It looks in depth at what they are, what it would mean for universities, and that the UCP. Um, part of their election platform was requiring post-secondary institutions to implement these things. Now, Janet, Mm. give us a rundown on what they are. Well, uh, (laughs) so (laughs) the Chicago principles um, basically are a a set of guiding ideas for universities saying uh, attempting to protect free speech on campus. Um, And they're quite high level. Um, 
And uh, so what what the UCP has said to universities is you must adopt, you know, word for word, the Chicago principles, or you must um, pass a policy that basically includes uh, the ground covered by the Chicago principles. And you must do it by October. Oh, but wait, no, never mind. You must do it by (laughs) December. A little unclear about why the delay is. Uh, And so I think the the questions around this are where, why is this a UCP platform commitment in the first place? Because that's one of the rationales for they're saying why we're doing this. Well, we we campaign on it. We're going to do it. Um, So who is calling for this, first of all? And there's various people have different theories on on why they're moving in this direction. Well, it's pretty clear, though. It's a it's a conservative it's conservative governments all over the North America have done this. You know, like uh, that. There's this idea that if you're not quote unquote liberal or if you're not left enough, or then you're, you're not welcome get, on campus. You're not welcome on campus. Right. Your opinions aren't welcome, and that somehow university campuses are shutting down conservative viewpoints that's the argument like with the canceling canceling speeches by controversial speakers or having students you know protest it which then raises safety concerns so then universities cancel them because they're worried about safety or security right Right. um so so (laughs) some interesting things is that the herald had a story about this I think yesterday and this morning as well, about why the delay. And one of the reasons that the advanced education minister cited um, for why this is something that they're pushing forward with is uh, he gave the example of a 2016 professor at the University of Lethbridge who made controversial statements and then was suspended from the university. Uh, But the statements that the professor made were conspiracy theories about Jews being involved in 9-11. So why is it a priority to, first of all, I think, I wonder if there's some confusion here about the difference between academic freedom. So the, you know, the, the ability to have um, a position on campus doing your work and uh, freedom of speech, because those are not the same things. Mm. Uh, And the Chicago principles do address both of them, I believe. So I was reading a bunch of blog posts and opinion articles by professors who oppose the imposition of of the Chicago principles. And uh, it's funny because in true, you know, stereotypical academic fashion, they go on quite a bit, uh, <laughs> shockingly. Uh, and I'm like, somebody just give me like a three sentence explanation for why notes, you think this is it. a bad idea, right? Because at, at a high level, they sound very logical, right? Like, no, no, you can't. Canadian law protects against hate speech. No, we won't allow hate speech on campus. But if it's not hate speech, have at or say whatever you want. But I think I think reading between the lines of some of these very nuanced, detailed academic arguments is that um, is hate speech the line you want to draw in the sand as what a university should do or should should be? Is that your standard for the quality of discourse that happens on campus? That's a low and, bar, and it's it's a low bar, and also it's it's a huge gray area, right? So. I think I read an example, like if you're a trans person and your professor gets up in class and exercises his A, academic freedom and B, free speech to say there are only two genders and gender identity is not a thing that exists, then um, do you have the same, do you feel as comfortable on campus as um, a cis person? Right. And does a university is a university a safe space and should a university be a safe space? And I think that that's that's the gray area that universities are kind of existing in 
And um, because you wouldn't, you would argue that a that a K to twelve school should be a safe space that you wouldn't allow, uh, you know, someone to say something anti-Semitic in a K to twelve school, or that would be frowned upon substantially. So, is it is the university just is it the real world now, or do they offer some sort of level of protection, um, or should they offer some sort of level of protection for people who? who have uh, who feel disenfranchised or who are vulnerable. Well, yeah, and I just adding to Janet's point, like I think we do see examples in academia where there are potential issues for students who feel unsafe. So like the example of a student who maybe has a professor who's not using correct pronouns or refuses to use correct pronouns, that's an, that's an issue for trans people. Or also um, with anti-abortion groups who are mm. uh, kicked off campus because they poten- use potentially triggering messaging for women who are trying to attend classes. Like, there are lots of examples we've seen in Canada where um, universities have kind of taken a stand against certain types of messaging within their campuses. I think there's also the question about, like, why is this... Why is this the most press? Is this the most pressing issue in post-secondary education right now? Just big picture. You know, we've got no the balance between uh, <laughs> the balance not. between tuition fees and funding. We've got like what's the reliance on international students? What's the reliance on corporate funding? How does corporate funding affect Are there enough seats activities the at the university? Are there enough seats at the universities for people and colleges? Are we putting people in the right seats? Are there enough seats in the right vocations? I is mean, the infrastructure up to date? Oh my god, deferred maintenance. So what about the so courses? so there's all that, and then now here we are. The first thing out of the gate is free speech. I mean, it goes back to what we were talking about, about how as the government tries to get its fiscal house in order, they need uh, something to signal um, that they are taking action and sending signals uh, to the, to the, you know, to the, their conservative base about what they believe in and what they stand for. And, um, you know, certainly all, all the things you guys talked about are really good points. And there are people who would argue the other side of things that, you know, the, the, the idea that people who are against abortion should have that free speech. And these are things that I think that we all struggle with. As journalists, we all believe that um, free speech is incredibly, incredibly valuable. Um, and that but we also understand that within the Canadian context, there is a different bar than within the American context, which always strikes me as why are we talking about the Chicago principles? Yeah. There needs to be a, you know, kind of uniquely Canadian version. I mean, if you the want Toronto to talk principles. about this, I think so. Like if you want to talk about this, because you can't just cut and paste no, things from an American context into Canada, just like you can't cut and paste um, all of the various things that we see from the U.S. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, the journalism and, and the rights and, and the responsibilities that we have, they're, they're, equal but different like they're it's just they're not exactly cut and paste and you know i guess because it's like court we all watch american court so we're all used to thinking oh canadian courts are just like that well as you saw from court of queen's bench Mm -hmm. it is not (laughs) wait judge judy isn't real life that's very strange um interestingly when i did the deep dive into the policy back in march i spoke with a free speech expert and she um, was helping universities in Ontario deal with this very problem because Doug Ford did the exact same thing. He got into government and said, you need to implement the Chicago principles. And if you don't, you're going to miss out on funding. Now, we've really pushed the minister here on that and he will not say one way or another whether or not this is tied to funding. And the problem she said was that you have these universities, exactly as you said, Sarah, 
saying, okay, sure, uh, if we're going to lose funding, yeah, sure, we sign on to the Chicago principles, even though you can't actually do that really technically in a practical sense in Canada because of our different laws and the way everything works here is so very different. Mm-hmm. So it's one of those things. And she also pointed out it's one thing to have free speech on campus, but she's like, well, if I'm the, in the geography department and a flat earther wants to come and speak with my with my students, what possible point is there to that because they're being completely debunked by science like there's no there is no point to them being part of an academic discussion because their view is irrelevant because it is very very wrong and false and has been scientifically proven to be so there's so there's no point to it which is a a fair enough argument as well. I, yeah, I just wanted to point out too that this week what was kind of interesting is that um, Minister Nicolaitis also pushed back the deadline to implement the Chicago principles. So universities now have until December 15th, whereas it was supposed to be sometime in September. So I think now it's kind of a wait and see game. We're going to be kind of, we had we saw Keanu College and Lethbridge both um, say that they've implemented them. And so now we're going to, I think, really see in the winter what this actually means on exactly. campuses. And we'll see what happens with the budget as well. Let's move on to our final topic. Uh, just briefly, we are going to do a quick update on the war. Is Are you going to always say it sounds like Danny in The Shining? So scary. Yes, I'm now going to say it like that forever, yeah. Clancy. Thank you. Um, Carson, so basically- can you add some music at this point in the uh, in podcast, Producer please? Carson, dun, dun, dun. Uh, yeah, so basically the government has um, hired a former Financial Post oil and gas journalist to figure out how the heck this thing's going to work. Now, we don't know how much she's getting paid. Uh, the government actually is not giving us her contract and just said, you know what, it's a sole source contract. So they just went and grabbed her and said, off you go, love, go do the work. Paraphrasing, they probably didn't say that. And, um, no, I would think not. <laughs> <laughs> I would hope not. <laughs> and so basically the, the Premier's office said to me yesterday when I asked a couple of times, look, that will her contract will be up online um, under the sole source contract list. It's updated every quarter. But the thing is, it's a three-month contract. So by the time it's posted, her contract be will done. be done. So that's great transparency there, government. Super. Well, and I think, so let's preface this conversation. Obviously, I think we have to acknowledge that when we're talking about the war room, that uh, we just mentioned that the, the Post Media had hired a lobbyist for some involvement in the war room. That was not related to our newsroom. That was related to um, a different a different sector of the company. But let's just, let's just get that out of the way and put that out there. But I think it is still um, an important topic for us to discuss about, because this is going to be key in Jason Kenney's strategy for... Uh, going going after energy. And I'm going to be very interested to see what Claudia does. She's a very respected journalist, and I'm going to be interested to see how uh, what she how that translates into this government job, which is a very different kind of job that the government says will be sharing facts in in a way about the the energy sector. Um, so I think it's an, an interesting choice. And I guess three months, we'll see if that gets turned into more. I was really interested to hear how they talked about it being a a small team. You know, when you picture a war room, you picture, you know, 
I don't know. I picture lots a, of men with a cigars. A lot of people. Yes, yes. Drinking and, cognac. And maps of, on the table. Yeah, maps. Exactly. Yeah. Cubicles. That yeah, sort the, of, the little know. tiny tanks that they push around with yeah. sticks. Yeah. That's yeah. what I was well, waiting okay, for. I, I wasn't quite going there, but <laughs> I just, I pictured a lot of phones and a lot of oh. like, you know, a lot of people. I've gone straight back to World War One. Yeah. Ta- <laughs> you know, making a lot of calls and doing all kinds of things, but. Um, but please tell me there are figurines of like Zipporah Berman I mean, and you would Ed Whittingham. So, otherwise, please. Otherwise, otherwise, you're not having enough fun with the war room. Guys. Absolutely yeah. not. I think it's interesting that at the same time as you know the province is working on its war room, that the uh, the oil and gas se- sector was has been out there doing its own marketing. We had uh, companies like Synovus and and two of two other colleagues take out full page ads with. A message that may be a bit different than what the UCP is trying to share. I guess we will see how different they are, but talking about how the energy sector and caring about the environment and the are, are not incompatible. Um, so they're out there doing some messaging on their own. That was a, a huge ad campaign that they ran, and I think that's very interesting that they were doing that. We were talking about that on The Current this morning, and it occurred to me that during the election, Things apparently pop into my head at 5.30 in the morning. Who would have thunk it? Certainly not me. But Jason Kenney, during the election campaign as part of his war, sorry, his war, his oil and gas strategy was, yes, the $30 million war room, and we're going to boycott banks if they don't support our oil sands. But another key part of that was he he was going to require oil and gas companies to start standing up for themselves and spend some money to defend themselves. That was a key part of his whole strategy. So I wonder if these ads weren't somehow done at the behest of Jason Kenney and the UCP government, because that was a key part of what his election platform was. That is an interesting 5.30 a.m. Right? <laughs> Very, I haven't had any You're coffee. putting links together. That's yeah. really good. I know. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Let's move over to our regular segment, Good Stuff from the Gallery, in which we recommend things we've read or seen or listened to lately that we think you might also enjoy. Janet, do you want to kick us off, please, mate? I do. Let's talk about something completely different. Um, this is actually probably about a week old now, but it's still a, a more timeless story that you should all read. It's called A Doctor's Deception, and it was in Toronto Life uh, magazine. And uh, Very my, disturbing read. Very disturbing, mm-hmm. but very well done. So uh, journalist Michael Lista did a great investigative piece about a doctor, uh, an obstetrician who worked in uh, in Toronto delivering a hell of a lot of babies. And um, the nurses and other healthcare workers started noticing something very strange about some of the patterns of his deliveries. And in a couple of cases, they found uh, basically induction medication pills inside these women who said that they were not induced. And it's a very disturbing look about how one doctor with a lot of influence on a lot of patients can really throw the system for a loop if he doesn't have a good respect for consent and medical consent. And the amount of work and investigation and time that was required to get to the bottom of this by um, both the professional regulator who regulate doctors in Ontario um, and the hospital was substantial. They ended up discovering that... uh, for some reason, because it paid more, he was delivering a shocking number of babies on Saturdays and Sundays so he could bill almost one and a half times what he would normally bill so he could pay his own personal That's not cool, expenses. Man. Really? Yeah. And I mean, it, it raises a lot of questions about um, the kind of risk that um, an unsavory character might put patients at just out of 
greed and or even desperation, right? Just a really, it's a, quite horrifying, but also like a really well done piece. And so. also raises questions about the um, way we discipline doctors and how much you actually Absolutely. know about their cases. Yeah, yeah because he was he was kind of cited a few times by that, the medical college in Ontario, in a way that no woman would ever be able to look up and find that out if they That's were crazy. researching who they wanted for their OBGYN. Yeah. Uh, Sarah? So I'm going to go back to one of my favorite old chestnuts that listeners who, who've listened to the show for a long time will know I, I really like the podcast Planet Money. Um, people who know me also will know I am perturbed by the state of recycling and what is happening in Edmonton and Alberta. But they just had a couple of interesting episodes about the whole issue of recycling. Of course, I mean, it's through the lens of looking at it through the US, which is where the podcast comes from. But uh, they had a July 10th episode called A Mob Boss, A, gar- a Garbage Boat and Why We Recycle, as well as uh, another sub follow up of uh, on July tw- 12th. So why should we recycle? So I recommend that. And can I also say I've watched um, I've recently got Amazon Prime the video and I recently watched The Man in High Castle and I've been kind of binge watching that oh it's so disturbing a dystopian view of you know what the world would look like if the if the Nazis had won World War II and it is uh, it is disturbing and I want to wreck it's good but it's also like I've been lying in bed a lot at night thinking about it. So I don't if you if you if you if you dwell on things, it might not be the show for you. But it's pretty interesting and a kind of terrifying look at how things could have gone the other way. I'm going to recommend something way lighter than any of that that brought me much joy this morning. I'm going to give you two stories, but it's about the same thing. Wigan Athletic, the uh, UK football team, they have just <laughs> they have just unveiled their new mascot. Sarah, I'm going to show you this picture. His name is Krusty the Pie. Oh, good heavens. <laughs> is that a joke? No, it's real. Oh Why would a foodstuff be your mascot if you're not a food company? It's a you pie. Know, it's a pie. It's, it's a ma- the mascot is a pie. Um, so I've been reading a couple of articles. Seriously, it is amazing. That's but hilarious. Gonna, I, this is an article oh, out he's of... he's so earnest looking. I and know, he's so happy, He looks right? like a ray of sunshine with with a pie crust edge. Well, that's <laughs> kind of what he is. That's what all pies are, right? So it was, it was designed by two local children, Caden, eight, and Neve, nine. That's cute. Because they ran, the football club ran a competition. But so they went on Sky Sports on Friday al- alongside a former international like player and unveiled <laughs> this <laughs> new mascot. But I just love these quotes from Caden um, and Neve. Quote, we designed Krusty like this because everyone in Wigan loves pies. Oh, that's so cute. It took us about 30 minutes or an hour to design. It took a long time to choose the exact colours. <laughs> and the colours are like blue and white. He's got like, he's this gigantic oh. smiling pie. That is so looks ridiculous. Like with blue and white it's leggings. Adorable. So anyway, I'm kind of obsessed with um. Wigan That's Athletic hilarious. now and then specifically their new mascot. And so I'm going to recommend another piece from The Sun that I read after this, which was basically people's reaction to <laughs> to Krusty the Pie. Very positive. People loving Krusty the Pie. Someone was like, oh, you just know that they're going to – It was, I think it was a Birmingham City supporter. It was something like, oh, you just know they're going to kick us out of the Premier League and then they're going to have a damn pie on as a mascot on the ground to parade around once Aww. we lose to them. <laughs> what was their mascot before? They didn't have one last oh, season. okay. 
So they put it to the local kids community. Mascots Apparently, are about as controversial as any hot button political issue, as we saw from when the true. Oilers unveiled Hunter, the terrifying Lynx. I mean, or yeah. still yeah. to this the, day. Game of the Gopher in Saskatchewan, there's been a lot of controversy around him. But apparently about half of the entries in this competition were pies. What is what? going on? People we love pies, man. That I don't is know. So the weird. kids were not wrong. Kids were not wrong. Clancy, how many got for us? I don't think I can beat that, but this is a really great piece I loved um, from The Cut in New York Magazine, and it's just such a bizarre story. Um, the headline is, The Most Gullible Man in Cambridge. A Harvard Law Professor Who Teaches a Class on Judgment Wouldn't Seem Like an Obvious Mark, Would He? And it's about kind of this four-year saga where this guy his life just totally falls apart because of kind of potential scamming. But it's just the most bizarre story I've read in a really long time. Um, Lots of people have been talking about it on um, social media and a couple of newspapers wrote editorials after about kind of what it means for how people are reading the news as well, because depending on how your political views align, you might read the story somewhat differently. I'm not even going to go into it because it's just a crazy story, but really, really worth it. Nice. Guys, thank you so much for joining me, Sarah O'Donnell, Janet French, and Claire Clancy for another week here at the Press Gallery talking all about Alberta politics. Again, reach out with any questions, comments, or concerns, cocktail recipes, dog photos, cat photos, cute memes. I am open and receptive to all of the above. You can find me on Twitter at Emma L. Graney or email me egraney at postmedia.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back again next week.